0: From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Before our worship begins, I'd like to share with all of our members and friends a little bit about our financial situation. Regrettably, our projection for year-end reveals a deficit of $420,000 on our $5.7 million budget. While we've worked diligently to manage our resources and expenses, giving in 2022 and 2023 have fallen below expectations. I assure you that our trustees, session, and financial team have thoroughly explored all options to mitigate this situation. If we are unable to bridge this financial gap, difficult decisions will need to be made. This could include budget cuts, which might impact various aspects of our ministry, including a potential reduction in personnel for the year 2024. However, we believe that as a community bound by faith and shared values, we have the ability to overcome this challenge. And so I call upon each member and friend of First Prez to consider how you might be able to contribute to our financial strength. If you've already given in 2023 and have the capacity to go the second mile, please give more. If you've not given in 2023, please give today. You can mail a check, give by credit card, uh, give by stock transfer, or use the QR code that will be on the screen in just a few moments. Our congregation has had a successful capital campaign securing pledges of over $36 million. Our ministries with children and youth are bursting at the seams. Our worship attendance, both online and in person, are strong. Our community ministries continue to serve our most vulnerable neighbors and friends with compassion and great care. Our staff is strong, gifted, and committed to serving the mission of the church. My hope is that our giving will increase Uh, to support the strength of our ministry in this season of our life together. We will continue to communicate openly about our financial progress and any developments that we have as we move forward. Please keep our congregation, our leaders, and our shared mission in your prayers. If you have any questions or concerns, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. And thank you for tuning in to this week's broadcast.
1: Hear God's word for you and for me Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.
0: Amen. Our second text uh, this morning comes from the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 14. Uh, A text also familiar, as is the one that Katie read from Philippians 2. Uh, Listen to God's word. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before I pray, I just want to give a a little uh, forward uh, to this two-week sermon series that I've put together, both this week and next week. Um, At the heart of Christian theology, and this has been this way for 2,000 years, at the heart of Christian theology, there's, there's a difficult challenge for us to navigate. It's the challenge to hold with integrity two attributes of God, two attributes of God, in terms of God's relationship with us and relationship with the universe, with the world. Those attributes are summarized in two really important theological concepts. They go by the names of imminence and transcendence imminence and transcendence. Imminence refers to the belief that, that God is intimately present and actively involved in the affairs of the world. It emphasizes God's closeness and God's accessibility to human beings. It uh, is a belief that, that suggests that God's presence can actually be felt, that God can actually be known, that God can be experienced experienced and observed in everyday aspects of our lives. Imminence is often associated with the idea of God's personal involvement in the lives of individual people, as well as God's ongoing participation in the life of the world. That's imminence. Transcendence, on the other hand, refers to the belief that God is beyond or above the universe. It emphasizes God's supreme incomprehensible nature and the fact that God exists beyond the limitations of anything that is physical. Transcendence then underscores the idea that God is not confined by space or by time or by human understanding. God's nature is considered infinite beyond human capacity and comprehension and that's transcendence. So today, as I said in the next uh, we, in next week's sermon, rather, I'm going to reflect on how important it is for Christians living in the 21st century to embrace both the imminence and transcendence of God, to hold these two with integrity, to embrace the imminence and the transcendence of God as a sort of antidote, a moral and ethical antidote that speaks to two prevailing ideologies that exist in the West today, that exist in our world today, deism and materialism. That I think holding these two intention, holding them together, imminence and transcendence gives us uh, a deeper understanding, uh, speaks to our commitment of how to live as Christians in the 21st century in the shadow of deism and materialism. Now, my hope is that this is not gonna be an ivory tower mini-sermon series. My hope is that we're gonna be able to fit ourselves with some shoes and walk this in the world. That this theological reflection will actually make a difference in your life and in my life and in the life of the world. That's my hope Uh, And with that hope in front of us, I'd invite you now to join me in a moment of prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for showing up this morning, for bringing us together, whether in person or remotely. We ask, O Lord, that you would speak to us the word that we need to hear, that you'd give us everything we need to face the challenges of this moment, the challenges of this day, and the challenges of our time. That through these ancient words and through this humble reflection, that we would see you, hear you, and be encouraged to live as Jesus lived. To his honor and his glory, we pray. Amen. It's believed that that the world's oldest working clock uh, is, uh, or one of the world's oldest working clocks, you never can be too sure with these things, uh, is in Salisbury, England, Uh, It's at the cathedral in Salisbury. Salisbury is a a small little town about 30 miles southeast of Bristol, England. The clock, it's believed, dates back all the way to 1386. 1386. That's approximately 637 years old, which means that it has counted over 20 billion seconds. I mean, that's a lot of seconds that's a lot of time. I want you to hold that for just a moment. During the Enlightenment, this philosophical revolution in Europe and in, in the West, uh, an idea began to emerge that's still with us today, some three centuries later. It's a philosophical construct that goes by the name of deism. Some of you've heard this name, word before, rather, some of you 've never heard it before. Deism is a a theological belief, actually. It's a belief in the existence of God. The the belief in the existence of a divine creative force, but it rejects the idea that this divine creative force intervenes or or enacts or, or is connected to or shows up in personal ways. In other words, that this God is impersonal that this God is not near us, that this God is far off from us. It asserts that God created the universe and established the laws of nature, but does not directly engage or interfere with those laws or with the life of the world. And the most frequent analogy used uh, to describe deism was that of a divine clockmaker or divine watchmaker, right? The creator creates the timepiece, and winds it, and it ticks and ticks and ticks and ticks and ticks. Religious scholar Karen Armstrong put it like this. She said, "'Deism turned God into a rational mathematical construct. "'The deist God was the watchmaker God "'who wound up the universe and let it run "'according to fixed laws.'" You see, from a deist perspective, God is distant, God is uninvolved, God is absent from the day-to-day concerns of the world, which also means that God is distant, uninvolved, and absent from the concerns of your life and the concerns of my life. It's you, it's us having to navigate the created order all by ourselves, And when we look at the state of the world over the past three centuries, it's no wonder that deism has become such a popular theological conviction. The world is violent, Uh, evil persists and persists and persists some more. Humanity's inhumanity toward itself runs rampant, and we often find ourselves asking, Where is God? Where is God in all of this? Where is God in the barbarism and terrorism of Hamas? Where is God in Hamas's using hostages and Palestinian civilians as human shields? Where is God in the violence and the war and the displacement and the suffering of the people of Gaza and the West Bank? Where is God in Russia or Ukraine? Where is God in China or Taiwan? Where is God in the United States on its city streets or in rural America? Where is God in mass shootings? Where is God in the drug crisis? Where is God in neglect and abuse? Where is God in the disintegration of the family? Where is God in that fatal car crash? Where is God in the depression? Where is God in the divorce? Where is God in the dementia? Where is God in the life that was cut way too short? Where is God in the broken heart? Where is God? When I think about that question, where is God, I, I, I think about a tragic story told by Holocaust survivor and Nobel Peace Prize winner, Elie Wiesel. One day when Wiesel was uh, imprisoned at the Auschwitz camp, a young joy, Jewish boy was taken. Uh, to the gallows. And many in the camp were forced to watch this boy's final moments on earth. The SS made uh, some prisoners walk past the gallows. Vizel was one of them. And as he passed by the boy's lifeless body, a prisoner behind him screamed out, where is God? Where is God? And Vizel wrote in his journal that turned into a book called Night He said, I heard a voice within me answer the man. God is here hanging on the gallows. We might say it like this, that God is dead or might as well be dead because God is nowhere to be found. After World War II, Many scholars wrote about the impossibility of believing in an engaged and present and involved God in the aftermath of the Holocaust and in the aftermath of two atomic bombs being dropped on Japanese cities. We understand, I think, this sentiment all too well, not just because we know world history, but because we know our own histories. We know our own personal histories. For how many of us have come to the same conclusions in the face of a child's death or in the face of a spouse's death or some other tremendous loss or some sort of isolation or some sort of addiction or or some sort of way we've been victims of, of violence or marginalization or even oppression. Where is God? God might not be dead, but God is certainly nowhere to be found. It's no wonder, right, that deism has become so popular today and has been popular now for three centuries, right? Because let's be honest, we have this instinct for the divine, don't we? We have this sense that there is an immovable mover, that there is this this grand intelligence, that there is this supreme being. We look around the world. We look at life itself. We analyze each and every breath that we take and make and say there has to be, there has to be a God in order for all of this to exist. It cannot just be an accident. But some of us have also included that this God has just let the world run itself. It ticks and ticks and ticks on like a clock and sometimes like a time bomb. And for some religious folks, even for some Christians, this intentional or unintentional move toward deism produces religious expressions that fetishize the afterlife, or create these, this hyper-obsession with heaven or the world beyond, right? And here's how the logic goes. And it is logical. It starts to make sense, right? We say the world is going to hell. God's not involved in the material world. God seems to be absent. God seems to be somewhere else. God is in heaven, ergo, that's where I want to be, and that's going to be my focus, and I'm going to focus. I'm going to create theologies. I'm going to create community life. I'm going to create sermons. I'm going to create a prayer life that's all about helping me get to heaven. And This way of thinking seeps into the life of the faith, into the life of the church, into the life of the world. Because if the material world, if the material world is a place void of God, then that means my body And my physical existence is void of God too. And all sorts of dangerous things emerge when we affirm this line of thinking. Self-harm, self-hate, numbing all things through alcohol, through drugs, hate of the other based on who we have deemed the other to be terrorism, violence, and all sorts of danger emerge when people are convinced that God is uninvolved in the material world, that God doesn't care about the material world. Because if God doesn't care, why should I? Why should I? Why should I care about my physical existence beyond just pleasure to escape the treachery of this age? Why should I care about my neighbor? They need to fend for themselves, just like I do. Well, historic Christian commitment and historic Christian conviction offers an answer to these questions and this sentiment. It's prepared to give, I think, a thoughtful and thorough defense as to why matter matters to God. Those answers and that defense is rooted in one of the most important doctrines Of Christian Orthodoxy. It's something that we call the incarnation. In the very first chapter of the Gospel of John, and I I read it for us, it's going to be a text that we're going to hear again on Christmas Eve as we light candles. It'll be the last scripture verse that we'll hear on that night. And in that verse is one of the most famous lines of all of religious literature and certainly of the Bible. The word became flesh, it says, and dwelt among us. The word, who is Jesus Christ, quite literally, the Greek means this. It's such a wonderful turn of phrase. For those who love the outdoors, you'll especially appreciate this. It literally means in the Greek that Christ pitched a tent with our tents and camped out with us. That's what it literally means. For the Christian, the incarnation proves deism's flaws because Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. The incarnation proves that the life of faith is not just something that's otherworldly, but it is concerned with this world, with bodies, and with physical space and time. The incarnation shows us what our physical existence ought to consist of, the love of God, the love of neighbor, and the love of self. The incarnation, the Christian believes, proves that God is not far off, that in fact, God is so very near. There's a pastor in Texas, his name is Max Lucado, he writes a lot of popular books that that Christians from all different walks of faith uh, read, and he's this wonderful illustration concerning the scandal and improbability of the event that we call the incarnation, and this is what he wrote in one of his books as he was reflecting on Advent in the season of Christmas. He said, "'I'm watching a family of black-tailed squirrels. "'I should be working on my Christmas sermon, "'but I can't focus. "'They seem set on entertaining me. "'They scamper amid the roots "'of the tree north of my office. "'We've been neighbors for three years now. "'They watch me peck at the keyboard,' I watched them store their nuts and climb the trunk. We're mutually amused. I could watch them all day, and sometimes I do. But I've never considered becoming one of them. The squirrel world holds no appeal to me. Who wants to sleep next to a hairy rodent with beady eyes? (laughs) Give up the Rocky Mountains, bass fishing, weddings, and laughter? For a hole in the ground and a diet of dirty nuts? Count me out. But count Jesus in. What a world he left. Our classiest mansion would be a, a tree trunk to him. Earth's finest cuisine would be walnuts on heaven's table. And the idea of becoming a squirrel with claws and tiny teeth and a furry tail? It's nothing. Compared to God's becoming an embryo and entering the womb of Mary. I want to finish with this thought. Some will say, well, the incarnation, the ministry of Jesus, the crucifixion of Christ, his resurrection, the ascension, those are wonderful stories, wonderful time. We believe that, that God came in Jesus Christ, fully human, fully divine. But that's 2,000 plus years ago. He's gone. He's no longer here. Unless we're persuaded otherwise, I want us to remember, if you don't remember anything else in this sermon, remember this. Remember what Jesus promised. Remember what he promised. He promised to send an advocate. He promised to send a comforter. He promised to send his very spirit. And where is that Holy Spirit? Where is that spirit today? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know, Paul says, that your body is a temple Of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, Paul says, glorify God in your body. It doesn't say glorify God in your spirit, it says glorify God in your body. Glorify God in what is, in the physical. And how do we glorify God in our physical existence? We do it by emulating the incarnational life of Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit living inside of us. We do it by emulating, follow me here, we do it by emulating what Christ did with his body, even as we become his body, the body of Christ. Turning again to Paul in the text that Katie read for us. He writes in Philippians 2 that we should have the same mind, which means the same intent or the same will as Jesus Christ. And it says this, that Jesus Christ took on flesh. He emptied himself so he could be filled with the mission of God and became a servant of sacrificial love, a love that was willing to go to the cross, a love that could not be defeated by even death itself. The Christian is called to the incarnational life because matter matters to God. Because matter matters to God. Your physical existence, friends, matters to God. And so does your neighbors. And in God's sovereign and divine plan, you may think it's foolish, but this is God's plan A and there is no plan B. That God has chosen you and God has chosen me. God has chosen us to bring God's presence in the world. In hospital rooms, in philanthropy, and shared tears in a listening ear, in the street corners, in moments of darkness, in moments of confusion, in moments of pain, on mountaintops and in valleys, in the shadow of terror and in the shadow of war, in worship services, in prayer, and in Christian fellowship. The church and the Christian are called to live an incarnational life so that when someone wonders and when someone asks, where is God? We may respond with confidence and humility, knowing that God is with us and for us and in us. Not just in the next life, but in this very moment and this age. Amen.
1: and peace afford.